Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Bart Flies. This week, we're revisiting The Merchant of Venice to talk about the first English-language big-screen adaptation of the play, starring Al Pacino as Shylock. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is Minisode 4, The Merchant of Venice, Al Pacino edition. Hat that a Jew eyes? Hat that a Jew hands? Organs? Dimensions? Senses, affections, passions, fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? If you're listening to this and haven't listened to our last episode on the play, we highly recommend listening to that one first, because this may not make much sense otherwise. Although I would say, Will, I, I, don't, I don't know if this movie is going to make much sense in any case, but uh, that's something we could talk about. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, James, what did you think of this movie? I, mean, I think maybe this is a chance for us to describe the sort of overall aesthetic and approach of Al Pacino and this film in particular. You've got Joseph Fiennes, you've got Jeremy Irons as the merchant Antonio. Uh, you've, got a, you've got a sort of array of British character actors, and it's a very sumptuously designed and costumed production. Yeah, so a couple of basic facts about the movie this movie came out in 2004 i distinctly remember being in high school and seeing previews for this movie on what was at the time itunes movie previews you know if you went to the itunes website you could watch all the movie previews which i did obsessively back then weird thing you all should i guess know about me and it stars al pacino as shylock jeremy irons as antonio the titular merchant Joseph Fiennes, who we have talked about many, many other times on this podcast for his role in Shakespeare in Love, plays Bassanio, and Lynn Collins as Portia. And uh, it's a pretty faithful, or attempts to be, I think, a pretty faithful rendering of the play in terms of it sets it in classical or Renaissance Venice. And in, in many ways, oddly enough, I think it's actually much more faithful to the environment of Venice than Shakespeare possibly could have been. You know, there's scenes where Shakespeare describes people as being in the street underneath windows. And of course, in Venice, that really means that they're in boats in the canals underneath the windows, things like that. So the geography actually plays into it in an interesting way that it doesn't come across or seem that it should when you read the play. But of course, in Venice, it makes perfect sense that that's how it would, would happen. So personally, Will, I did not love the movie. I think it's decent, not great. It really tries to contextualize the movie as being very specifically, at least in my view, about attitude towards Jewish people and sort of generalized anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages when, of course, the play is set. Or I don't know if the play is particularly Middle Ages versus Renaissance, but whatever, in this period of time. It's very, you know, very luscious production design, these great costumes. It, it really, I think, does succeed in making Venice into a much like grungier and less optimistic 
looking place. You know, I think we're accustomed to seeing Venice in other movies. You know, I think of like Venice as portrayed in Summertime, the great David Lean romance, for instance, where it's full of light and it's really emphasizing the beauty of the environment and the beauty of the canals and sort of otherworldly nature of it. And actually in this movie, I think that Michael Radford, the director, focuses much more on Belmont with that, you know, Belmont being where Portia lives, emphasizes that aspect of Belmont where you have these beautiful shots of the early morning light on the water outside Belmont or Belmont underneath the moon with the scattering of stars above it. Whereas Venice is much grungier and, you know, you see these prostitutes running around with their breasts out and, you know, it has a much a, a much more down-to-earth and gritty vibe than I think we're accustomed to seeing Venice portrayed with. Yes, it's it's definitely portrayed as a, uh, a city of sin in one form or another. And the, the prostitutes running around topless, that's a, uh, a frequent motif throughout this film, I have to say. Pretty much, uh, you know, at regular 15-minute intervals, if there's, any, if there's any street scenes, that's definitely going on. So one thing that you, you, you said is I generally share your perception of this movie as maybe not entirely successful or uh, even deeply thought-provoking in some ways. Um, it, there's a lot to say about it, for sure. But one of the interesting things about it is it opens it with these cards that describe, I think it says 1596, so clearly they're trying to set it in the Renaissance era, like contemporaneous with Shakespeare, though obviously Shakespeare is creating an imaginary Venice. It's not like a, a documentary-style approach on the stage. But in the in the film, it opens with the, the date, and then it depicts the life of Jews in Venice, talks about how they're consigned to the ghetto. When they leave the ghetto, they have to uh, wear red caps to identify themselves. And it sort of shows a little uh, glimpse into Jewish life and the role of Jews in banking and commerce in Venice. And that's sort of the opening. And that leads you to believe it's going to be one sort of film. And it does take this very didactic. It shows Jeremy Irons as Antonio spitting in Al Pacino's face. It shows a lot of like anti-Semitic invective, a bunch of Venetian Gentiles throwing a Jewish man off a bridge into the canal. There's all sorts of like very visceral depictions of anti-Semitic violence. And I guess one of the interesting things for me about the play is you have that laid out at the beginning, but then it turns into a pretty conventional telling of the two plots of the Shylock rivalry with Antonio revenge plot and then the love plot. And I thought that was actually rather striking because when you watch the first 15 minutes of this, you're almost given to think it's it's going to be a different kind of film than what it turns out to be in some respects. So, Will, I'm, I want to explore this further because I actually had almost the opposite reaction to it where, I, you know, I was watching it and I felt like the parts that were, mo- you know, obviously you have to cut elements from the play to, you know, to fit it down to the runtime of a movie. I, I would say arguably this movie still is too long and maybe needed some more cuts, but I was watching the movie and I felt like the comedic elements were the ones that were more excised, that that more material was cut out from the casket plot than from the hate plot, as the division goes. You know, more was removed from Portia and Belmont and the various suitors and her interactions with Bassanio than were from the elements in the city of Venice. And... I actually thought that the movie went 
really out of its way to make Shylock the central character and to make it about the treatment of Shylock by others, and in particular, the mistreatment of, of Shylock mm-hmm. by others. But it sounds like you didn't have that same so, reaction. Yeah, I think in part, that's how I, I do think that there's maybe a slight difference in our perceptions of the way the film balances the two plots. But I guess let me turn it into a question for you. So where I agree with you is that the filmmakers do seem more interested in Shylock as a character and the revenge part of the play. No question about that. The question to me, though, is did you feel like Shylock was foregrounded in the back half of the play or movie compared to the love plot? Because that's where I think things get a little bit out of kilter. And I'm curious about how you feel like the two plots are balanced over time. Interesting. So obviously the trial scene is really the biggest and longest scene in, in the play. And I think it's something like 20 minutes of the movie. So it's a long portion of that. So you're really talking about leading up to the trial scene. Well, maybe let, let me clarify this. So are you thinking between when Bassanio sets off for Belmont? And the trial scene, or are you also thinking of what happens after the trial scene? I'm thinking also what happens after the trial scene. This is a very right. long movie, two hours and 11 minutes, <laughs> and at least 30 minutes are the denouement wrap-up, basically, or 25 minutes of that. Right. So there's kind of well, an interesting that, you know, so thing. Will, yeah. That's, yeah, that's an interesting question and a good point, right? Because, in fact, in, in that regard, it follows pretty closely to the play, and, you know, maybe part of my reaction just comes from the fact that that entire postlude in the play after the trial has been resolved and Portia and Nerissa go back to Belmont and then they meet Antonio and Bassanio there and they have the, the face off about the rings. I think in my mind, to me, that's just totally superfluous. It's a part of the play that I don't understand It doesn't fit into what I think is interesting about the play. And I think maybe my mind turned off once we get past the trial in the movie. So maybe that's a part of it. So, yeah, And in fact, the movie does end with this shot of Shylock being shunned by the Jewish community, right? So it does return to him. That's a a new addition to the movie, right? That definitely doesn't appear in the play. No, that's right. I guess, I guess, you know, to sort of branch off from that, I think what, what I find interesting about what you're observing is it's almost like they're the threads of a much different, one single, much different movie that could be edited down uh, or was present and then was spliced in with the more traditional romance plot. And the movie, as a result, is pretty faithful to the play, despite these sort of signs that the movie they really wanted to make was about Shylock and that what they really wanted to say something about was anti-Semitism and Shylock as a character. But I ultimately feel like it's undercut by the way that it is like, it's almost fastidiously faithful to the overall arc of the play. Right. Of the source You know, material. actually, Will, I think that's a really interesting point. You know, also in the sense that the play itself, you know, these two plot lines do not coexist harmoniously within the play i think there's a lot of dramatic tension in the play between the much more comic love plot elements you know portia making fun of the various suitors and seeing the ridiculousness of the suitors as they go through the test versus the much more serious stuff that's happening in venice right that that is a tension that exists in the play and i think you know, maybe some of that is on Shakespeare's writing and the way that he structured these things. and But it is also a, a question of execution, right? I think in the hands of maybe a really skilled 
artist, you know, a really skilled visual artist and director, maybe you could reconcile all these things more, uh, more elegantly, right, mm-hmm. and make them fit together better. And I think here that doesn't really happen. Would you agree with that, or or yeah, do you think I'm I, off I, base? No, no, I think that's right. I guess uh, to me, when you see the opening fifteen minutes, and it's it feels more like they're going to give you a gritty depiction of Venetian life and Shylock's existence as sort of a member of a persecuted minority. It seems like they set out to make a different movie than the one that actually gets produced as a whole. Because at the end of the Mm -hmm. day, you're right. In some ways, I stopped really paying much attention to the movie when you got past the trial scene. And of course, I do Mm -hmm. remember Shylock standing outside the synagogue after his forced conversion to Christianity being shunned by the Jews in the synagogue. But it's one moment, right? You get the sense that um, it's it's still a two-hour-plus movie where the comic thread is still very heavily emphasized and it's what they choose to end on. So to to me, it feels a little incongruous and it it almost suggests that there's a better version and a more interesting film version of this play that maybe isn't so attentive to trying to capture everything that Shakespeare was trying to do. But part of me also wonders whether the challenge that adapting the Merchant of Venice presents is fundamentally because of the two plot threads might have made more sense to Shakespeare's audience writing in the 16th century uh, in perform being performed then than it does to us today necessarily in the 20th and 21st century and that's partially because of the history of anti-Semitism in, in the 20th century, I mean, obviously pre-exists and Shakespeare depicts some of that, but it almost overshadows and uh, kind of trivializes the comic plot to the point where the incongruity is difficult to reconcile when you're watching it. And it's difficult, you get the sense the filmmakers by putting these like cards at the beginning that describe what Jewish life was like and wearing the the red hat outside of the ghetto to signify that they're Jews, et cetera, et cetera. You sort of get the sense that they want to make this movie about something, but it's kind of hard to do that if you also want it to be faithful in its entirety to what Shakespeare was writing. Do you, do you agree with that? Well, do you, what do I, you think I about would that? go so far as to say, well, I don't know if this is going to exactly answer your question. And so if it doesn't, you can push me on it. But you know, I also wonder to what degree doing this version, you know, doing the version of The Merchant of Venice that's about the intolerance of Venetian society actually undercuts the power of Shakespeare's thematic movement, you know? And like, so I feel like Shylock is portrayed in the movie very, very sympathetically. And obviously there's stuff that's inherent to the text that is anti-Semitic, but I think they cut out or de-emphasize a lot of the things that make him... Well, first of all, there's Pacino's performance, right? And Pacino's performance is very humanistic and I think very sympathetic to Shylock. But also they de-emphasize some of the elements that are unattractive about him outside of specifically things that he does, right? Such as, you know, I think they de-emphasize a lot of the the sense of his rapacious business practices, for instance, which I think is actually, we didn't talk about this in our episode on the play itself, but I think that actually is a huge 
element of why he seems so unsympathetic in the play, in addition to having such single-minded focus on revenge. And actually, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was thinking further about the movie and about the the way that they de-emphasize Shylock's villainy is actually, I think that when you de-emphasize Shylock's villainy in that way, you also de-emphasize the significance of the way that Shakespeare does fully flesh out his complexity. You know, if Shylock's not a villain, I don't know that it's meaningful that he says, if you prick us, do we not bleed? Yeah. You know, I don't know that without seeing him as a villain, the um, I, I, I and I really apologize that I, I failed to articulate this well, because I will, you'll be shocked to know, am not Shakespeare. Uh, <laughs> and I do not have that way with words. But a, a Shylock who's not a villain is not a Shylock that disturbs us by arousing our sympathy even as he is a villain, I think is the most pithy way I can think of to express this idea. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that that was yeah. a, something that was very present in my mind as I was thinking about this movie. So James, this raises an interesting question. Uh, when you compare what you were just describing about what makes Shylock and arguably The Merchant of Venice as a work of art appealing and moving and interesting, talking about Shylock as a villain, but also Shylock as a sympathetic character. I think this is actually a, a failure of the filmmakers in some ways, that they don't lean into that. Even though to emphasize the theme and emphasize the point, you might need to move away from some of the sillier romance plots uh, and the more comedic elements. And in that sense, I feel like one of the things about the Richard III adaptation that we talked about with uh, Ian McClellan is it said something beyond just what the text was about. And it also, it taught us something about Richard III, but also something about the world. It used Richard III to tell us about our world. And it also uh, used sort of the trappings of fascism to tell us about Richard III and authoritarian figures and personalities and the rise to power. In this, I feel like the filmmakers didn't make choices to emphasize that particular theme. The thing that they clearly are interested in is Shylock as a figure of pathos. But by keeping the comedic elements in and by depriving us of a sense of Shylock's villainy, as Shakespeare emphasizes, you're kind of left with a rather unsatisfying, overly faithful, uh, an almost overly attentive version of the Merchant of Venice, even though you have these little breadcrumbs that suggest that they're trying to make it about something more. They're trying to make it a uh, social commentary. And in a way, maybe they could have done that, but they would have had to make different choices and edit the film differently. I mean, they're, they're lucky that they had Pacino because Pacino actually gives a great performance as Shylock and I think really is one of the better elements of the, of the film. But I feel like it could have been used to better effect. Yeah, I agree. I guess, so I I guess I actually, I agree partly and I also disagree partly. I I wonder if it's possible to make this movie in a way that is about tolerance, honestly, or to to tell the story of the Merchant of Venice. I mean, going back to a point you were making earlier, I, I wonder if we just have too much baggage today with the legacy of the Holocaust and all the, you know, everything we know about anti-Semitism today to really make this movie in a way that is faithful to Shakespeare's vision 
Yeah. And I also wonder if it's even worth trying to do that. If you want to make a movie about anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages and make it be about tolerance, like I just don't know if this text is going to give you much to work with. How radically would you need to depart from the text of the play in order to make that effective, right? Like, it feels to me like you'd probably have to create entirely new scenes. And they do that a little bit, I think. You know, the first thing we see of Antonio is we see him spitting on Shylock. A moment that is only reported to us in the play, and that in the context of the play might be something that actually happened, or might be Shylock's rendition or interpretation of something that happened but wasn't as bad as what he said you know like within the text and within what is reported by characters there is always latitude for exaggeration or for unreliable narrators right mm -hmm. whereas when you see it on screen that's simply what it is right it's impossible to watch the way that that is filmed in the merchant of venice the movie and not feel very negatively about what antonio has done Whereas the way that he reports it in the text, you don't really know what happened. You know, you only have Shylock's version of events. So yeah. not that they don't do what they can to interpolate some things that are in support of what's in the text. And, and I would go so far as to say also that the final shot, you know, Shylock being rejected by the rest of the Jewish community is part of that as well. But I think to really make that happen, you would need to cut out a lot more of the love plot. And also you would need more scenes of... Shylock and of mm. Jessica and of Shylock's history to make it work. And that would entail, I think, departing from the text and departing from Shakespeare in a way that would make it not Shakespeare. So, uh, you know, in the same yeah. way. So, like, you know, we talked about, for instance, 10 Things I Hate About You in our episode on Taming the Shrew. And I think that's actually a pretty instructive example here because 10 Things I Hate About You is, I think, a better version as we said then, as I think a better version of The Taming of the Shrew. But it is not The Taming of the Shrew. Right? Yeah. It is a different thing. And this movie ultimately is still an interpretation of, of The Merchant of Venice. Yes. And so I think to me, if you're going to do The Merchant of Venice, you have to do what's there. What you're going to get out of the play is going to be from what's in the play. Whereas I feel like these guys are trying to get something out of it that's really not in what Shakespeare wrote. Yeah. I, I yeah. think ultimately my, my the point that I'm trying to make is what they're trying to make The Merchant of Venice about is not what The Merchant of Venice is about, and that's a real problem when you're trying to make a movie. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if, if you wanted to make this, the, if you wanted to emphasize the themes that they want, you could make this a character study entitled Shylock, right? And you could tell the story taking the scenes that are relevant to Shylock and adding new ones in, as you said, giving more of his backstory. And you could recast different aspects of the story to fit that emphasis and that, and that sort of thematic focus. But you have to make those choices, right? It, and it becomes something slightly different. Like, I, I'm not even opposed to them borrowing not just story elements, but even the characters themselves and reimagining it. But that's a substantively different exercise. Oh, yeah, yeah, completely. I was thinking about ways in which you could do this film that would be in some ways resonant with Shakespeare's other work, but also with genre films of today. I mean, there's definitely a Tarantino-esque vision or version of this that you could see with Shylock getting his revenge 
in a Django or um, Inglorious Bastards sort of Shylock way. Unchained. Shylock Unchained. Yeah, but, but there's an element here where you could play up the sort of persecution that Shylock undergoes and really foreground that and make him get revenge. And there's obviously revenge plays that Shakespeare has written, most notably Titus, where he allows characters that are even kind of villainous in some respects to have their due, right? And to to get with their heart's desire, the revenge on the people that have wronged them. And there's a way to do that. That's one type of version. Another type is just like truly Shylock is tragic character and social portrait character study of Shylock in Venice and Venetian society. There's a lot of different ways you could do this with the character, but I feel like they only really scratch the surface and the degree to which you're appreciative of it, it's through Pacino's performance and through some of the decisions, I think, at the very beginning and very end of the film that sort of show Shylock amidst Jewish society in Venice and his eventual ostracism. It's like stuff like that that makes it potentially really poignant, but they're just like these little suggestions. They're powerful, but they don't really change the whole arc of the story when you have the comedic elements emphasized as they are. So that was sort of my impression. It's like, you need to be bolder if you're gonna try and substantively reframe a story like this. You gotta lean into the revisionism. You can't go halfway or just ultimately make the Merchant of Venice. It has to be. It has to be different. Yeah, I, and I think you have to be very upfront about the fact that this is an interpretation of the Merchant of Venice. You know, whereas mm-hmm. I think uh, we talked a little bit, although we didn't get deep into it, because because this is, I think, such a prominent part of the dramaturgy of this play. But we talked a little bit of in our episode on Shakespeare's play about. The battles about, was Shakespeare anti-Semitic? Was he not anti-Semitic? You know, is Shylock an anti-Semitic caricature or is he a figure representing universal humanism? Like, we, we talked about some of those conversations, I think, in a very limited degree. And I feel like what's happening here is that, you know, people really want Shakespeare to be endorsing the position that they take, right? And therefore, like, if you take the position that, you know, Shakespeare couldn't possibly be anti-Semitic and therefore... Merchant of Venice must be a play about tolerance. You know, if if that's your attitude, then I think you can end up with a movie like this, you know, that tries to make it about that and doesn't succeed because that's not really what's there. You know, I don't think it's possible to read, frankly, The Merchant of Venice and not come away thinking that Shakespeare is basically an anti-Semite, as was de rigueur in, in his time. Right. So I think you have to be you know, pretty upfront in saying if, if you want The Merchant of Venice to be about those things that we've talked about, you can say The Merchant of Venice is our point of departure, but this is not The Merchant of Venice. Mm. And I think this goes back to what I was saying about wanting them to lean into Shylock's villainy is like, I think if you're going to do The Merchant of Venice, you should go to what makes The Merchant of Venice fascinating. Um, mm. and, and on that point will i think it might be worth talking a bit about our own taste and our own interpretations right because i feel like as i'm saying this what's coming out of it is that i don't feel like this play represented what i thought was interesting about the merchant of venice but of course who's to say that i know what was interesting to shakespeare about the merchant of venice or what is interesting about the merchant of venice to anyone else so i think that's also a point that has to be acknowledged is that we're bringing our own interests to these texts as well yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you think about that? No, I think that's I think that's right. Like one theme that we talked a little bit about in the the show on the play itself is this whole emphasis of legalism and grace and forgiveness embodied by Shylock's drive for revenge and Portia's very moving speech in the courtroom at the end uh, about the importance of mercy. And you get the sense that Shakespeare's theme and maybe a principal preoccupation of the play are the sort of spiritual subtexts and debates that would have been going on in the background. And that is somewhat absent. I mean, it can't be completely absent from this film adaptation, but that's clearly a central preoccupation of Shakespeare's based on who gets the best lines, the climactic scene in the courtroom. So I actually do think that there are some threads of things that Shakespeare's weaving in that he's clearly interested in. The problem is those may not necessarily translate well to people today who may have different preoccupations or might be more interested in the character of Shylock because of historical context and the struggle against anti-Semitism and, and bigotry and that being sort of the foregrounded. It's very hard to watch this as a 21st century viewer without sort of feeling that weight of history. And I think to Shakespeare, the weight yeah. would have been in a slightly different place. And that's that's just sort of a inevitable result. And it becomes hard to um, take a step back and see that for what it is, right? Because we have such a strong... A play with a character like Shylock... Yeah, well, and I think... It's so hard to get away from that, you know? Yeah, and I think actually, and this is just a, a furtherance of something I was saying earlier on in this conversation, you know, I think the weight of that history makes it very difficult to see what viewers of the play in Shakespeare's time would have come away with, which I think in the context of Renaissance England... Now, I don't know how large the Jewish community in London was in, you know... 1590 or 1598 whenever this play was first performed obviously there was a long history you know all the jews were expelled from england in i think the 1300s or something so or 1200s mm -hmm. so you got you can't can't have been a very large population but regardless I, I think in the context of shakespeare's time and in the context of where the baseline that people were coming from was that christianity was the primary lens through which people encountered the world, Shylock's forced conversion at the end would be viewed as a good thing. You know, it wouldn't be viewed as uh, as an injustice that's done to him as it reads today, right? And so, I think in you know, if you if you try to access the play through the lens of a of a 16th century London viewer, that's the perspective of being a Jew is just clearly wrong. You know, and, and so I think if, if you were to transpose that today, we don't have that association. So you'd have to sub in something else that most people today would watch well, and be like, that's clearly wrong. Like, it would, you know, yeah. it would have to be like Shylock's a white supremacist or something. And he's forced to convert to not being that at the end. Right. And that's what would get to a similar type of audience reaction. I Maybe, yeah. So I guess uh, to, to sort of... I, I sense disagreement in your voice. I'm just sort of thinking this through. So part of what's interesting to me about this period, both historically at the time of Shakespeare's writing, right? And I think this is probably true even in Elizabethan era England, though I'm sure 
you know, we can we can fact check this, but I definitely know in the Netherlands and I think in Switzerland, right, Jews were accepted by the Calvinists into Amsterdam and, you know, the sort of free provinces as, as time went on in the uh, 17th century. Uh, in particular, you know, Spain expelled the Jews uh, and then the Dutch Republic welcomed them. The point is, I think that there, even though there was something seen as even though you know Judaism and, and sort of a baseline anti-Semitism was very much part of Christian Europe, I don't think that the idea of forced conversion was a universal one necessarily. That's sort of a, a minor historical footnote, but I think it, it points to this broader question of Shylock's status, right? Because Shylock has to convert because he ends up becoming a victim basically of his own villainy and his own insatiable quest for revenge, right? It's not like the Venetian characters, as anti-Semitic as they sort of are, as just baseline viewpoints. They're not going in to, like, convert all the Jews in Venice, right, at, like, the point of a sword. So there's right. this interesting yeah, yeah. element of, like, Shylock is this character, and he embodies these sort of stereotypical qualities that people attribute to, to Jewish people, right? But he's also supposed to be kind of an outlier in some ways, right? And I think that doesn't necessarily sit well with us as modern viewers, right? There's this sort of struggle over representation. And if you're going to put forward Shylock, who was probably one of the best-known Jewish characters in post-biblical literature, I would say, you know, certainly in the English-speaking world for a really long period of time, you kind of yeah. get no, stuck... Because um, in some ways, he's meant to be a sort of representative figure, maybe, of certain stereotypes and bigoted assumptions about a, a certain community. But he's also treated as something of an outlier, too, even in Shakespeare's own work, right? You, you get such a very like narrow and limited glimpse into Jewish Venice in Shakespeare's play. And I think this is one thing that the movie does kind of well, actually, is the glimpses you see of the Venetian Jews at Temple or going to get kosher lamb, you know, at the meat market, that kind of thing. There's all sorts of, like, indications of this very rooted life and community. Mm -hmm. And Shylock is both part of that, but he's also, you get the sense from the, the play or the source text, he's supposed to sort of be unusually rapacious and unusually villainous, right, in some ways unusually vengeful yeah. and unusually exploitative, possibly even within the context of the Jewish community. And that doesn't really get much treatment in the movie. And it doesn't get much treatment in the play either. I'm not trying to suggest the play says other than, than it does. But I, I do think that there's a really interesting element there that's kind of hard to hard to parse. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, I wanted to, uh, you said one thing that actually was something I really liked about the movie, which is all, all these scenes about, you know, involving the butchery of the animal or butchering the animals and the kosher meat markets and stuff. I thought it was a great visual motif that they brought in that actually did play really well into the whole pound of flesh mm -hmm. subplot. So I just wanted to shout that out because I thought that was a really interesting and nice, nice move. Yeah, yeah. I think we've pretty much covered the Shylock element of this, uh, unless there was anything you wanted to add on that front of no, play no. versus movie. So I think we've both alluded to this, and in some ways I feel like we can do just a little bit more discussion of how beautiful the costumes are and how sumptuously 
appointed all of the sets are in this thing. And we, you just talked about it a little bit with the way the kosher meat markets are sort of set up in one scene, the use of the canals, you know, some of the outfits are great. What, what do you think was maybe the most striking bit of costuming or, you know, just the visual elements of the film? Because we've talked a lot about the themes, but this is a movie after all. So and there's a sort of visceral part of it, too. There's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, and I referred to this back at the very beginning of, this, of the conversation, but I thought that actually one really successful element of the movie was creating the contrast between Belmont as this idyllic, peaceful, beautiful location on the water, perfectly in order. There's a real sense of refuge to it, particularly in contrast with the grittiness and the, you know, the prostitutes running around, the meat markets, the crowds of Venice. I I thought that was really effective and and did a good job of siloing off the two worlds. and And I think that's part of actually why I was disappointed that I felt like they de-emphasized the love plot because I thought that if they'd weaved those in a little bit mm. more and a little bit more effectively, actually, we might have had a better overall thematic result. Yeah. You know, that we might have actually ended up with a more successful overall interpretation. I also thought the staging of the trial scene was pretty effective. I mean... Uh, seeing Pacino bringing in his scales and bringing in his chest with which has his sorry what what am i his, he his scales in his, his chest drop. yeah yeah uh, and then additionally the you know the costuming they, they do a surprisingly good job of selling that Bassanio would not recognize Portia and Nerissa mm-hmm. they do a pretty good job of creating a starkly different visual of Portia particularly in that she's wearing the fake beard in the trial scene mm. versus how you see her decked out in her finery with her beautiful long hair at, in the Belmont scenes. And then I actually missed, I think, the longer versions of the casket scenes, you know, mm. where you have first the Moorish prince who I think chooses the gold casket, and then you have mm-hmm. the Aragonese prince who choose the silver casket and those those scenes are very shortened and it's easy to see why those scenes were so shortened compared to what's in the play because i do think they are kind of the most superfluous scenes in the play Mm -hmm. but i actually thought they visualized them really nicely and i liked seeing the way they had the caskets i liked seeing the foppish aragonese prince with his little fake spectacles those comic elements i thought actually were nicely done, and and so that was also part of why I think I would have liked to have those scenes a little bit more fleshed out. Yeah. What did you think? Do you agree with that? Or yeah, I, I thought that they used the canals very effectively in shooting this, and there's a sense of motion a lot of the time. There's also just great walking scenes, right? When you you have the moment where uh, Shylock is talking to Bassanio and Antonio, and they go to the notary, right? Or where they're having the meeting and he's he's got his um, pound of mutton wrapped in a white cloth. You know, he's talking to them. There's some great little visual notes that really add the sense of street life and that this is like a city that they live in with its own particular context. I actually think the first, you know, 10 minutes of the film or so, five minutes of the film are really um, are really actually well done where you're sort of seeing a friar or, uh, you know, a, a Catholic priest sort of railing 
against the Jews in the canal uh, and you sort of see the almost riot-like atmosphere that's unfolding. There's all of these little nice touches where they're both adding something but also taking elements of the, the setting in Venice and really making it making it work in new ways and visualizing it in very dramatic ways, which I enjoyed. You know, there's a there's definitely a sense of place. And the costumes are great too. I think um, the choice of having Pacino, you know, depicting Pacino and the, the rest of the Jewish community in red hats when they're outside of the ghetto and in their normal mm-hmm. clothing when they're inside and then in the temple when they're wearing you know, yarmulkes and uh, tefillin and so forth. And prayer There's shawls. There's a real prayer shawls. There's a real sense of how the costumes are an important part of signifying who people are and the context that they inhabit. And I think there's a nice a nice effort to do that, even to the point where Pacino, in his final scene where he's looking forlornly into the synagogue, doesn't have a hat on at all, right? Which is, I think, right. maybe the first time that he's bareheaded in the film. So there's a lot of um, a lot of sort of powerful little things like that that clearly somebody was thinking through and, uh, and you know, made sense. Let me add one thing to that, Will. Actually, because I think you just got at something that, or another manifestation of this is the the costuming, uh, and not just the costuming, but I think primarily the costuming helps to understand exactly why Bassanio needs this loan in the first place. Mm. You know, where you see the contrast of Bassanio before he goes to Portia, and it's not that he's like ragged or poorly dressed, really, but he's he he has a certain long in the tooth type vibe to him and then you see him when he's setting off to go to Belmont you know in this fabulous barge and then you see him when he arrives there and he's in a, a you know beautiful costume and he's got this phalanx of manservants behind him who are all in the same livery and you understand you know the, the way it, the way it reads in the play you don't really understand why he needs to have any money invested in his effort to go wooing. Mm-hmm. And then when you see it in the movie, it, it makes perfect sense. Like he has to put on enough of a face to have the standing to show up at this woman's door and say, you know, I'm a legitimate suitor for you. And I thought the costuming basically accomplished that entirely without needing a single line of dialogue mm-hmm. to explain it. You know, you could yeah. see the contrast immediately and it made sense yeah so absolutely just one well, I, further I, element on on where the production design was was successful i will tell you one thing that i did not think worked which was joseph fine's ridiculous mullet-esque haircut in this film which truly needs to be seen to be believed yeah i don't think this was joe fine's uh, finest performance i have to say but perhaps it was just the hair talking to me <laughs> Well, when you're in a movie with a, a scenery chewer like Pacino, it's it's hard to compete, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would have liked a little bit more out of Irons as well. You know, I thought Irons was, was not given a lot to do in this movie, except look a little mopey. But that's also, I think, to some degree, I mean, the first lines that Antonio has are, I don't know why I'm so sad. So maybe it shouldn't surprise us that much Indeed. that that's all that Irons does. But... I don't know. He's such a great actor. I think I would have I would have liked him to bring a little bit more to the role of Antonio. Yeah, but agreed. Anything else you want to cover, Will? No, I think that's about it. I think we've uh, we have definitely dealt with the Merchant of Venice Al Pacino edition. All right. Well then, that's our show. Next time, we promise we will actually get to Henry the Fourth Part One. Thanks for tuning into Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us an always glowing 
five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.